This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are almost heretical. If I am reading in the Sermon on the Mount and I see Jesus setting forth an ethic that sure looks a whole lot like nonviolence, but I don't like that because I'm an American and I believe in redemptive violence, I believe that myth, then I can run into the Old Testament and go, Phew. Here, I found a verse where God tells, you know, Joshua to kill the Canaanites, so praise God. I've used Joshua to save me from Jesus. That's the kind of problem we get into with a flat reading of Scripture, where every Scripture carries the same weight, and at any moment you can silence Jesus by rummaging around in the Old Testament and finding something more to your liking. That's, watch this, almost heretical. <laughs> you can find us online at almostheretical.com. Come to Welcome to Almost Heretical. Whether this is your first time or 21st time listening, we're really excited to have you on this journey with us. Our whole goal with this show is to provide spaces of dialogue for those of us in faith transitions, through or away from ideas about God, Jesus, and the Bible that just aren't working anymore. We do this show because we want you to know that you don't have to walk away from God. And we want to give you more beautiful ways to think about some of this stuff. One of the things we love each week is reading all of your emails. That really keeps us going. So if this show sparks any thoughts or if you want to share part of your story with us, we'd be super honored by that. You can email contact at almostheretical.com. We read every single one of these emails and they really do inform what we talk about on the show. And today on the show, we are super excited to have Brian Zahn joining us. He's the pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri and the author of several books, including Water to Wine, A Farewell to Mars, and his latest, and my favorite of his, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Brian, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. Yeah. You've been a critic of many aspects of evangelicalism and Reformed theology. But yeah, I guess what would you say are kind of your biggest concerns for how large portions of the church are envisioning God and Christian faith? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> one of the things I would say about the American church is that uh, we have inherited a Puritan understanding of God. I think all Americans, by default, have a Puritan soul, even atheists. <laughs> the, the God that American atheists don't believe in is the Puritan God. And so that's, that's really a part of who we are. And you combine that with the myth, kind of the cowboy myth of America, of redemptive violence, and you end up with a God who is violent, angry, and retributive. Some of that comes from Puritan theology. Come, some of that comes from the American cowboy myth of redemptive violence. And so we are, as a society, very much obsessed with retributive justice. And the idea that we and our God, as we imagine this God to be, are capable of using violence toward good ends. I think that permeates much of our thinking, much of our society, and much of our theology. And that's, that would be one area where I push back pretty stringently. Would you be willing to share any of your story in terms of uh, kind of how you started to unthink some of your own Puritan theology and sort of where uh, some of those cracks started showing up for you? Let's see. I'm getting old enough that my story's real long now. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. 
When I was in high school, I had this dramatic encounter with Jesus Christ, and overnight I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a Christian ministry that was it was a, it was a coffee house ministry is what we called it then, which was mostly a music venue. But you know, I did teach there some. And by the time I was 22, it had turned into our church, and that was 36 years ago. And so I've been on this very long journey doing one thing, really pastoring one church. Uh, but around the time I turned 40, I started having to rethink a lot of things, and that reached kind of a crisis point when I was 45. Uh, I'm 59 now. I don't make any, you know, I don't, I don't try to put people off the scent of how old I am. I'm just an old dude. But uh, <laughs> I, I really began to rethink th- some things. Kind of went through a, a spiritual crisis that ultimately saved my soul. That was very good. That's the story I tell in my book, Water to Wine. Um, but it was while writing my book, Unconditional, which is my book on forgiveness, that I just really began to have problems with the atonement theory, and I must stress these are theories, that I had inherited. Um, the church has had numerous ways, many ways, of talking about how we understand the cross as salvific over our 2,000-year history. But contemporary evangelical American theology has sort of arrived at this peculiar spot where it doesn't have a multitude of metaphors. It has one single understanding of the gospel, and that's what's known as penal substitutionary atonement theory, and that's a mouthful. But it it has almost come to the point where it is, and I think quite wrongly so, identified as the gospel. Uh, but I began to have problems with it. As I, was, as I was writing a book on the radical nature of forgiveness at the heart of the Christian faith, I would run up against this problem, though, but is God forgiving? Or is God the ultimate being requiring vengeance? Can God just forgive, or does God require some sort of payment? And that was the beginning of the unraveling of what I'd understood as penal substitutionary atonement theory. And then I, then I came, to, it doesn't take long to read, as you begin to read, it doesn't take long to figure out that there is, uh, you know, whole bookshelves of books have been written on this just in the last 20 years. And then one of the more scandalous discoveries you make is that the version of PSA that is so dominant in America today is at the most 500 years old. I mean, some of the seeds of it you find with Anselm a thousand years ago, but that's not what we understand as PSA. It's really, in the whole scope of church history, quite modern and very Western. And uh, so anyway, that's, that's a really inadequate thumbnail of how I arrived at the point where I was rethinking that and, and finding myself embracing something much more uh, in line with the ancient Orthodox way of understanding the cross as saving. So you mentioned having a number of different ways to think about the cross, and we've covered some of those on the show. You know, I've heard some people say, you know, PSA, this is maybe a, a better case, that PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, is just one of a number of ways I think about the cross, which I think is, is an improvement, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's better at least to consider other ways. I think that's a step in the right direction. For me, it's not an option, but, but I think I, I will be content if we can start with saying, well, okay, it's one of the metaphors we use in talking about the cross. 
and then I'll then I may push you further and say, and I think it's very unhelpful, and I think ultimately untrue. But right, it, it certainly is a massive breakthrough to recognize that it's only one of many different metaphorical ways of talking about the cross. Yeah, totally, totally. I think that's that's really helpful. So, did God crush Jesus? What do we do with with that language that we hear in Isaiah? Well, you're borrowing, you're you're working from Isaiah 53. Yeah. Because believe it or not, I've had this conversation before. <laughs> okay, first of all, Isaiah 53. I mean, you want to start there? I mean, there's a lot of places I can go. Let's, let's, let's talk about Isaiah 53. First of all, it's Isaiah. Uh, we're talking about the suffering servant, which is a mysterious figure. That Christians, you know, these are in the servant songs of 2nd Isaiah. And it's impossible for Christians not to hear about... Um, the suffering servant, especially the Isaiah 53 passage, and not think of Jesus. And this shows up in the book of Acts when uh, the Ethiopian eunuch has come to Jerusalem and he's obtained a scroll of Isaiah and he's coming back and he encounters Philip and the passage he's reading is the Isaiah 53 passage. And Philip begins with that text and begins to preach Jesus to him. But the important thing you have to understand is that um, it is the Greek translation, the Septuagint translation that informs Christian thought. Uh, it is always the Septuagint that all New Testament writers are working from. No doubt this is what uh, Philip is reading. Not a Hebrew text, but the Septuagint text. And so in the Septuagint, we read things like this. That, that very passage, it pleased the Lord to purge him from his stripe. So, so part, part of Isaiah 53 in the Septuagint reads, By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? And then a few verses later, you have uh, the line, uh, He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It pleased the Lord to purge him from his stroke. So, um, if you're gonna if you if you're going to if you're gonna base the whole of your PSA on a disputable reading of the Hebrew rather than the Greek Septuagint version of Second Isaiah, and then import it into the New Testament in a way that it's going to influence all of your reading of the New Testament, then well, I think you've already decided that this is what you want to believe. You want to believe that God was acting vindictively on Good Friday in a retributive manner, satisfying His own wrath through violence. But that, that opens up a whole lot of other questions. Uh, where do we really want to identify God, the Father, at work on Good Friday? Are, are we to find Him in Caiaphas demanding a scapegoat? Are we to find Him in Pilate? Uh, issuing capital punishment for the sake of the Roman Empire? Are we to find him in some Roman military soldier scourging Christ? Are we to find him in the... Where is the Father? I think the Apostle Paul would say that on Good Friday we find God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is why when the Son prays, Father, forgive them, He's not merely requesting something of the Father, but is in fact revealing the very heart of the Father, so that we might imagine the response of the Father being, of course, Son, that's who we are. That's what we do. 
So I see Christ on Good Friday not saving us from God, but revealing God as Savior. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive, but what God in Christ endures as He forgives. Um, so, you know, um, Good Friday is, is dripping with violence, bloody violence. Um, someone says, well, okay, no, but God required, God required a, a violent execution of his son so that he could forgive, which I think we can explore in a moment later. I think that's very problematic. But I say, well, so, so let me say this. So, so it's like this. God says, um, okay, I know that I'm love, uh, but, you know, still, if I'm going to forgive, yeah, I'm going to need some payment here. Uh, I'm going to require a death. Uh, you, you know what? It's going to need to be a violent death. Um, nail somebody to a tree, a perfect one. My son, nail him to a tree. Thorns. I'm going to need some thorns. Can somebody get some thorns? We've got to put some thorns on this guy. Wait a minute. Before we do anything, let's, let's, let's torture him with scourging. Then someone says, well, you know, some of that may have been gratuitous human violence. I said, well, to explain how this division of labor works. I mean, how, what is going on here? No, the violence of the cross is entirely human, and we might add demonic. The love and the forgiveness of the cross is entirely divine. I've got a question, um, kind of more on like the psychological uh, realm. You've been having these conversations for a long time now, and and even having conversations publicly. Uh, Nate and I both came from similar theological background, growing up believing in PSA, teaching PSA as essentially the gospel. Because probably you had no other option. I mean, it was just assumed that this is what it was. Yeah, that's what it meant to be Christ-centered, yeah. and yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm curious, so you mentioned in there, like, uh, so many people that'll point to Isaiah 53 or try to do something with Jesus's cry of dereliction from the cross to support penal substitution, they want to hold that view. They want to to make that view true. And I know from the other side of this, so many of us felt so liberated <laughs> and like we found a whole new beautiful faith on the other side. Yeah. So what is it you think psychologically that drives people to want to hold on to this retributive idea? I don't know that there's any one thing, and I don't know if I'm enough of a sociologist or psychologist to arrive at the answer, but I do find myself wondering about the distinctly American obsession with retributive justice. Uh, again, I, I, I point to some of the cowboy myths, but just even America's prison system it seems to be hard for many Americans to think of justice other than punishment. Uh, a biblical understanding of justice would have much more to do with setting things right, restoring that, that, that which is broken, that which is corrupt, that which moves away from human flourishing being set right. That's, that's the biblical concept of justice. But somewhere along the way, Americans picked up the idea that justice is purely punishment. And so even as a society, we seem to be very skeptical 
that a, a prison system could move in the direction of reform. No, it's just punishment. And I think it's why America lags behind most of the rest of the world in coming up with a criminal justice system that is able actually to uh, return people to being productive members of society rather than making them, through our institutions, almost impossible of functioning within society. We're obsessed with justice. I mean, I mean, what, what other modern Western country practices capital punishment? I mean, I tell people all the time, there, there are three kinds of states that still practice capital punishment. Tyrannical states, Islamic states, and the United States. And, uh, you know, so we're in the same category as North Korea and Saudi Arabia. And I don't know if that's the category we want to be in, but that's, that is indicative of American collective consciousness regarding justice. Why that is, I think, is probably beyond my ability to unravel all of that. But uh, it, it has something to do with our history and obsession with guns and cowboys and retribution. And then that, that bleeds into our theology. Yeah, totally. I have a question sort of from another angle. You know, a lot of people and a lot of the listeners of our show have sufficiently, to a, to a point of kind of leaving this circle, they've rethought a lot of these ideas and they've they've uh, either, they self-identify as outside the kind of penal substitutionary atonement circle, but even maybe a larger sense, the, the reformed or evangelical tradition that they came from. Yeah, so I kind of want to talk to them a little bit and give them some tools that they can use. And, you know, the monster God debate that you did, which if you haven't seen that, go check that out. It's really, really helpful because it's kind of a live back and forth where you actually are addressing some of the biggest questions or biggest pushback that, that kind of the other side on this, on this issue um, are bringing. And so I guess kind of combining this all together, I mean, the, the person you were talking to in the monster God debate or the person you were debating, that's a lot of our friends, I guess. That's a lot of, you know, some of our families and, um, A lot of the community we were in. It was me 15 years ago. So you see, I had, I had a distinct advantage in the debate. My disadvantage was everybody in the room was against me. That was a disadvantage. But the advantage I had was I, I entirely understood my debate opponent's arguments. I could have made them. I could have, I could have debated his side just as well as he did. I mean, I understood every single nuance of his argument. He really didn't understand what I was saying. And it was new to him. He hadn't heard it before. Couldn't quite. So I could make his argument for him. He couldn't have made my argument because he didn't understand. So that gave me an advantage. Not that I wanted an advantage because it's not about winning, but I'm making the point that um, a lot of people embrace PSA because that's the only way they've ever been given to think about it. Uh, given an option, and if they realize it really is a legitimate, I know your podcast is called Almost Heretical, but this is a thoroughly orthodox, small O, but also large O as well, way of understanding the cross, and they're happy to embrace that. So, I mean, I mean, I confess that Christ died for our sins. Just the mechanism of how that works, I understand differently than those that adhere to PSA. That is the, you know, the heirs of Calvin. Heirs, like H-E, but it could... <laughs> right. Air. You could hear that two different ways, couldn't you? <laughs> I think one of the uh, maybe painful, also disillusioning, and even just exhausting parts of 
this deconstruction, reconstruction journey for those of us who come from within inside a basically pretty traditional fundamentalist world is, while it may seem like really good news to some of us to encounter other options, to those surrounding us, that's deeply threatening and kind of like scary, dangerous ground. And so even in that debate, you could tell that your views weren't just being disagreed with, they actually uh, came as a kind of offense. Like the way that you were, were talking about God was like, a, you know, offending the way he wants to, to picture God. And I'm wondering kind of how you've learned to navigate this sort of messy world when some of us are going through theology, faith transitions, and others aren't, and how you wrestle with all that. Well, let's remember that my day job is I'm a pastor. And I've been a pastor now for three dozen years, one local church. This debate came about like this. I'll give you the, the inside story. Uh, I had, during Lent of 2014, preached a sermon series called The Crucified God, just kind of stealing the title from Ergon Moltmann. It was you know, like six sermons on how we can understand the cross. Probably half of those sermons, at least, maybe four of them, were directly pushing against PSA. I never once used that term. I never once said penal substitutionary atonement theory. I never once addressed it. I was just able to talk about a better way of understanding the cross. Uh, it was very popular. Zero controversy in my church. Zero. I mean, no one's like freaking out. They liked it. And then people at IHOP in Kansas City, students, started listening to this and, and passing these, uh, you know, the links around to these sermons in, in the Crucified God series, and, and they were digging it. And then I think some of the powers that be at IHOP thought, whoa, you know, this is, this is not what we adhere to, so we better bring in Michael Brown to tamp this down. I think, I think it kind of backfired on him because I hear from people almost every day still, you know, that tell me, you know, this, I, I found this on YouTube, this monster God debate, and it completely revolutionized the way I view the cross. That isn't what they intended to happen with that, I don't think. The, the reason it's called Monster God Debate is one of the sermons in the series was entitled Death of the Monster God. And that's where I don't ever say the word PSA. I don't refer to Calvin. I don't refer to Anselm. I don't do that. But I, I talk about shall we understand God as a retributive deity that demands his own son be nailed to a tree much akin to we might think that we're going to appease uh, some pagan deity by throwing the virgin into the volcano. No, uh, a correct view of the cross enables us to dispense with the monster idea of God. And so they picked up on that and they called it, they, called it, they gave it that title, the monster God, but that's where it comes from. So I'm, I'm answering your question by saying I was able pastorally to take my church on a journey through atonement theory and never even use the word atonement theory and not cast it so much in terms of technical theological language, but just talk about how God is revealed in the life of Jesus. And I really didn't find it that difficult. I think if you just can find a better, more true to Christ 
more beautiful way of announcing what happens on Good Friday that most people, unless they are preconditioned to hold on to a particular theological system, will readily embrace it. Now, if somebody has already sort of just made a formal commitment to Calvinism, and they've got their tulip and their five points, then they're going to have to decide. Then that's going to be something for them to overcome. But that that isn't the bulk of people that are sitting in pews across America on Sunday morning. And if they are given a better way of understanding the cross that doesn't cast the Father in the role of an angry deity, then I think they'll embrace that. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter, co-host of the Leaving Eden podcast, and I was raised in a cult. I signed purity pledges. I cried at the altar. I went out door-to-door soul winning, and I didn't own a pair of jeans until I was 20 years old. I saw it all and did it all as I grew up completely immersed, pun fully intended, in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. With my co-host, Gavrielle Hakoen, I unpack all of this from the hilarious to the traumatic back to the hilarious on the Leaving Eden podcast. New episodes release every Monday on all podcast streaming platforms. We recommend new listeners. Start by checking out episode 57, in which we discuss the bite model and give an overview of my personal story. This is all just really, really impactful for me. And I just got to say, like, you've had such a huge influence in your your latest book, um, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, which like complete opposite of the way I kind of always had pictured God. And I don't want to... Yeah, me too. I don't want to, yeah, and I don't want to like come down on people that 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 taught the Bible to me because I think right. they're largely just trying to be faithful. Um, but whatever whatever reason, I came away with a picture of God that kept me up at night, mm-hmm. that drove me to my knees in tears to make sure over and over and over again at camp, at uh, just you know church services, whatever, that I was not offending this God and He wasn't going to cast me into uh, a conscious torment hell, uh, conscious hell for all of eternity eternal conscious torment yeah there it is yes for all of eternity um and so i guess to to get into this picture of god then this does this does change our picture of god and i've heard you say this before and so i kind of want to kind of want to get to this now but you you reread the old testament uh, a bit different in light of jesus and this this comes out in your latest book sinners in the hands of a loving god which i would totally encourage everyone to check out can you just get into that a little bit how you are rereading the old testament because i think a lot of people would say that's almost heretical <laughs> the way you reread the Old Testament. Yeah, to, and to which I would say, I, I read the Old Testament as a Christian. Well, what is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible, sort of. Well, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that. Of course, there is this text that Jewish people would not call the Old Testament. They would say it's the Bible. It's the Jewish Bible. So we have to ask ourselves, why is the Hebrew Bible appended onto the beginning of Christian Scripture? as this massive prequel? Well, the answer is because Jesus was Jewish. And we understand that the Jewish Bible is the Bible that Jesus had and worked with. And it's because of Jesus that we're interested in the Hebrew Bible, which we now call the Old Testament. You could make a case that there is a difference between the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible read purely Jewishly. The Old Testament is the same text read as a Christian, read in the light of Christ, read with Jesus. Particularly for Gentile believers in Jesus, we would simply have to understand that Jesus is our sponsor, and I would even add chaperone, into the Old Testament. What we cannot do is use the Old Testament 
to countermand the commands of Christ. So if, if I am reading in the Sermon on the Mount, and I see Jesus setting forth an ethic that sure looks a whole lot like nonviolence, but I don't like that because I'm an American and I believe in redemptive violence. I believe that myth. I kind of always like John Wayne movies and all of that sort of stuff. And I'm, I feel threatened. Then I can run into the Old Testament and go, Phew. here, I found a verse where God tells, you know, Joshua to kill the Canaanites. So praise God. What have I done? I've used Joshua to save me from Jesus. That's the kind of problem we get into with a flat reading of Scripture where every Scripture carries the same weight. And at any moment, you can silence Jesus by rummaging around in the Old Testament and finding something more to your liking. That's, watch this, almost heretical (laughs) to do that. So uh, when we say Word of God among Christians, the first thought that should come to our mind is Jesus. This is the Word, the Logos, the logic of God made flesh. I don't mind calling the Bible the Word of God as long as we understand we do so in a penultimate sense. The Bible is the Word of God subordinate to the true Word of God, the perfect Word of God, which is Jesus Christ. What the Bible does perfectly, what the Bible does infallibly, is to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the Word of God in perfection. And so if I am using the Bible to point me to Jesus, then I'm using the Bible responsibly. If I'm using the Bible to get clever and find ways to wiggle out of what I see Jesus calling me to do and be, then I'm using the Bible irresponsibly. I'm, in fact, using the Bible as a way of hiding from Christ. Uh, and, and, I, and that's not just a theory. That happens. That's the danger of a flat reading of the Bible. And, and, and of course, then, then an opponent of mine will say, well, you're, you're, you're cherry-picking the Bible. To which I say... Everybody does. You do, I do. There's nobody that doesn't cherry-pick the Bible. What I'm saying is, do it well. Let Jesus show you how to pick the best parts of the Bible and privilege them. I mean, what Christian doesn't privilege the Gospel of John over Leviticus, right? I mean, and, and, and if you can't put it all together... See, the, the myth of Biblicism is that there's no contradiction. Well, it's just, it's just that's a myth. Let's say we gather representatives of Old Testament contributors. We'll have a priest, we'll have a Levite, have a psalmist, have a prophet, a few others, I guess. Maybe have a king or two or something else. And, and we gather them in a room and we say, hey, uh, we've got a question. Here's, a, here's our theological question. Does God require uh, ritual blood sacrifice? Uh, you guys, if you please, you know, draft your statement, give me a definite answer on this. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. I'll be back in a half an hour. You come back a half an hour later, walk in the room, and there's this massive fist fight going on. Because the Old Testament is not univocal on many issues, including this one. So if you ask a Levite, if you ask a Torah priest, does God require ritual blood sacrifice? Absolutely. I mean, I can show you the text. They're there. In Leviticus, there is a verse about God requires sin offering day by day. But then when you get to the psalmists, you have, you have uh, in Psalm 40, the psalmist dares to say, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then you get to Hosea, and Hosea, speaking in the name of Yahweh, says, you desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so what we find in the Old Testament is not a, 
a flat, univocal, non-contradictory, eternal statement, but we find a trajectory. We find a development over time. We find an ongoing discussion. I think one of the more helpful ways of talking about the Old Testament is that it is the inspired telling of Israel's story as they come to know the living God. But it's a journey, and a Christian is not allowed to stop at any point and say, now we've reached perfection until we reach Jesus. Now, there, there was a second century Christian heretic, Marcion, who he, along with others, Origen and many others, saw the problem that there is a way of reading the Bible where there appears to be a contradiction between some of what you see in the Old Testament and what you see embodied in Jesus Christ. Uh, Marcion's solution to the problem was to say that the God of the Old Testament was a demiurge, kind of a lower deity with demonic tendencies, and that it should just simply be eradicated from the Christian text. Uh, that was his solution. Here's what I say. I say the Old Testament is inspired scripture. I read it devotionally every day. I pray from the Psalms every day. I certainly don't advocate uh, getting rid of it, and I certainly don't call the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a demiurge or a demon. I call the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the Abba of Jesus. But I'm just saying that as Israel is in the process of coming to know the God who is self-disclosing Himself, there are assumptions made along the way, and we cannot stop until we reach Jesus. And then we interpret every other text in the light of Christ. That is not a low view of Scripture. That's a high view of Christ. That is privileging the Word made flesh over all things, which is another way of saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves everything that will be saved, including the Bible. Jesus saves the Bible from becoming just another violent religious text. The, the Bible reaches its culmination of where it's trying to go in Jesus. That would be a very Christian way of reading the text. Don't want to blow away Be just another quick to disappear this related, but uh, kind of a different channel. Um, one of my existential crises uh, in the last several years has been kind of a recognition that it's not just American history that's used Christianity for violence, but most of church history, at least since Constantine, has kind of had this tendency away from the, the nonviolence that you see in Jesus and, and used for that. How have you even just emotionally reconciled a faith that, that Christ is working through and in the church in history with this really hard reality <laughs> that most of church history has been potentially on the wrong side of, of violence. It can be depressing at times, can't it? Yeah. And that's why faith is required. And, and it, again, it's, no, it's, it's not an American phenomenon. It's just America's turn to repeat the same mistake. It's an imperial phenomenon. What you had happen was... For the first three centuries of church life, the church adhered to a nonviolent ethic, and they were able to confess Jesus is Lord and suffer the consequences when necessary. Suddenly you arrive at this moment where you have sort of a Christian emperor. Now Constantine understood Christianity well enough to know that you can't actually be a Christian and the emperor at the same time which is why, contrary to early church practice, he delayed his baptism until 
He was on his deathbed. He did not try to actually be a a baptized Christian and the Roman emperor simultaneously because he even he knew that that was uh, self-defeating. He couldn't do both. But I, I'm I'm not here to cast stones at the early fourth century church, who probably found it impossible not to celebrate something akin to the conversion of the emperor and then the privileged status they were given in society with the Edict of Milan. But with now 17 centuries of perspective, we can see that what happened in that was that Christ himself gets demoted from Lord to Secretary of Afterlife Affairs, and the church then becomes chaplain to the state. And there have been various iterations of this. Roman Empire, Byzantine Empire, Russian Empire, Germany, Spain, France, Portugal have all had their turns at playing around with this imperial form of Christianity called Christendom, and now the United States is doing it in its own kind of unique version in that America doesn't officially have a state religion, but uh, some versions of hyper-patriotic evangelicalism is the de facto state religion of America, and it's deeply, deeply compromised. So how do I keep from being... Because, because I recognize that somehow it's always been the case that God works with a minority. And so I try not to lash out in anger. I pray every day. I say, God, help me to be a peaceable voice in America, drawing your church away from its idolatrous allegiance to nationalism, militarism, violence, guns, and war. I mean, I pray that every single day. I pray that for probably 15 years so that, so that I don't slip into responding with anger or cynicism. Uh, I, you know, sometimes in some of my writings, I can use a, a level of sarcasm that I think might, you know, help make the point. But I try not to let it get deep enough into my spirit that it's be, that I become a cynic. I don't want to do that. Uh, I believe that that the spirit is working to bring forth a church that is not beholden to the state, not seeking to wrest scepter Caesar for their own agenda. How how do I do? I think I do it in prayer. I, I do it by praying prayers that I know are going to form me in peace. And um, you know, I'm praying. I pray the prayer of Saint Francis constantly. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's injury, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. Where there's darkness, light. Where there's sadness, joy. O divine Master. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. It's praying prayers like that that help keep me from becoming depressed, angry, cynical. And, and, and if nothing else, I mean, I'm talking to guys like you every day. I'm talking to people that are like, that the light bulb's gone on. They see there's something better. They haven't completely given up. They're hanging in there. They're trying to navigate a way forward that would be faithful to following Jesus. It's, it's really people like you that keep me positive and hopeful. Why don't I send you uh, two questions and you can pick. So the first one was, you mentioned prayer, but I'm curious, like, as Americans living in a world where violence, retribution, <laughs> allegiance to the state are the things that are supposed to make us great Americans, how have you in your own life and in those you pastor, what other practices, like what ways have you found that we can embody 
the nonviolence, peacemaking of Jesus that actually develop in us the capacity to live this out in our lives? That's first question. Second question is more like a, a personal decision. You talk about like finding these pockets of people who the light bulbs are going off and seem to be, I don't know, counterculture minority that can build hope. Curious, like how much of your energy you you give to sort of the broader cultural engagement or maybe like, you know, even picturing those of us that'll sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and face, you know, a whole bunch of different perspectives and disagreement. How much energy do you give to that kind of persuasion? Maybe I'll try to answer them both somehow together. I have three jobs, it seems like. I am a pastor. I am a traveling speaker, speaking in conferences and seminaries and things like that. And I'm a writer. And I do all three, but I privilege one, and that is the role of the pastor. Uh, My speaking and my writing come from my role as a pastor, and that keeps me honest. What I'm saying and what I'm doing all comes from what I do as a pastor. See, as a speaker... I can go around to very select venues where people, I'm pretty sure, are already going to agree with me, where people are highly motivated in a certain stream, a certain direction, and and they're mostly going to agree with me. They're inviting me because they already like me, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Writing uh, is something I can do all by myself, and then those that like what I write will read the books. Pastoring a local church in a real town is different. People visit Word of Life because they like what I do, but I tell them, I said, remember, we're just a real church made up of truck drivers and nurses and lawyers and people working in factories and people that are unemployable. And, (laughs) you know, it's just, and and it's St. Joseph, Missouri. This is not some paragon of progressive Christianity. (laughs) This is uh, my friend Jason Upton, called me up the other day, and he said, Brian, I'm listening to your sermons. You'd be progressive. You'd be edgy if you were in Boston. How do you get away with what you're doing in St. Joe, Missouri? I said, well, I'm not getting away with anything. I'm just doing what I'm doing. But uh, I'm not just just a talking head or or a book on a shelf to these people. I'm their pastor, and I'm doing life with them. And they see me day after day. And so... um, Ultimately, I think our best theology must be rooted in the local church. So staying rooted in the local church. I mean, I promise you that, you know, on Sunday morning, you were going to have Trump supporters and Bernie supporters sitting next to each other at Word of Life Church. I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not a big city. St. Joseph is 70,000, and it's just sort of conservative Midwest, and it's going to be what it's going to be. Um, But Jesus is fascinating. And if I can just continue to attract people to the beauty of Christ, areas of their life where maybe for decades they have defaulted toward retributive justice, the myth of redemptive violence, aspects of nationalism, over time, not by being yelled at, not by reading one blog, not by you know being shouted down or out-argued, but over the course of years of life in a local church, 
uh, people can be brought into a more a more Jesus-centered understanding of the faith where all things are possible. And I think that's a little bit about, I mean, I know I get, I, I know I, I know who I get lumped with. I'm not going to name any names. I, I respect all of these people, but I know, you know, because we, we all get invited to the same conferences. And, and so I'm always on the same bill with these people a lot. And they're good people. But here's the, here's the difference between me and almost all of them. Local pastor. One local congregation. 36 years. And that kind of keeps me honest. It, that keeps me from, as it were, preaching to a certain kind of choir. Because that's not the way my church is. My church is just, I don't know how to, just they're ordinary, regular, Midwestern people. I didn't get to go out and select people that would agree with me. These are just people that somehow have been allotted to our care at Word of Life. They've been attracted to our church one way or another. I don't know if this is making sense. I, I, maybe, hopefully you can hear what I'm trying to say here. Uh, that my, my faith and my hopes still really lie in the viability of the local church in its healthy form. And that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of, is that Word of Life, Word of Life Church is not a sensational church, but it's a healthy church. You know, if you if you visit on a Sunday morning, you might say, "Ah, it's okay, it's all right, it's good." But it's not going to be like you know the the greatest event you've ever been to in your life. But if you if you stayed around, if you hung around for a while, you would go, "You know what? It's a healthy church. They love one another. They're gracious. They forgive. They're they're trying, amidst all of their shortcomings and failures, to be more like Jesus." So, in one sense, I, I view Word of Life as kind of a a grand experiment that is succeeding. I have a friend in, who pastors in San Francisco, and he said for years, people would say to him, oh, Fred, his name is Fred Harrell, uh, uh, City Church in San Francisco. Fred, you're on the cutting lines. You're, you're on the front line. You're, you're on the front lines. And he says, I, I, I now tell people, no, Brian Zahn's on the front lines. He's in Missouri. <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying by that. Uh, so if, if you're thinking, well, how, how, do, how do we pull people out of nationalism and the worst aspects of certain you know, Republican conservatism that seems to be uh, willing to throw out any ethic that has anything to do with Jesus for the sake of power? Well, you can do it. You, 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 you can take those people and lead them into something that is more true to the Sermon on the Mount, because we're doing it. But you can't do it in a hurry. You can't do it in six months. You have to do it over the course of a very long time. So I guess my question is, I love what you just described. I guess what I'm, what I'm getting at is like half your church left. So you still have to like say the tough things and do the tough stuff where, I mean, half the, half the group leaves. Um, well, I'll, let me just tell the story. There, there were numerous issues as we began to go through our, our transition. There were more than one issue that came up, but by and by far and away, that which cost us the most people, far and away, was uh, my critique of the religious right and uh, my critique of nationalism, my critique of war, those sorts of things that would go with conservative, religious right, political positions, uh, that's what people left over. And it was very painful. I'm talking about, you know, I really started being more public in my spiritual transition in 2004. In some ways it began in about 2000. I'm more public about it in 2004. By five and six, 
it's costing us and we lose a thousand people over three or four years and I'm in a town of 70,000 which means if I go to the grocery store I see them and if I do it right I can see them in aisles one two three four five six seven eight nine ten you know and and it was painful it was deeply painful it was more painful than I let on but that but but I'm healed now I made it my wife and I we made it through it was hard we wouldn't want to go through it again we have the scars but but scars are healed wounds. They're not painful anymore. They're, they're a memory. I can show it to you. I can tell you the stories. But we made it. So Word of Life is, I, I describe Word of Life as half the size and ten times better. <laughs> you know, but, but there was always pressure. Because, you know, we were a large church, I mean, relatively speaking. With a large church, typically there's, you know, staff and budgets and buildings and you know, financial obligations. And there were, you know, I didn't know if we were going to survive. I didn't know. And it was this strange place of being in where on the one hand, I was, I was so happy in discovering a faith that I knew this, this, is, this, is, this is the pearl of the great price. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I, I had glimpses of when I was 16 years old. Um, this is what I've really been looking for. And so I, I'd never been more excited to be a follower of Jesus. At the same time, I was terrified because I also had this position as a as a lead pastor of a church that was, you know, maybe the whole thing was going to crash and burn. And it's not just that would be embarrassing, but it's also people I know and love, but it's also other people's lives that are involved. So that was a terrifying time, but we made it. We made it. We survived. And we had the phenomenon, and this is interesting, of and it happened numerous times of people my age uh, leaving and their adult children going you can do what you want mom and dad but we're staying this is what's this is what's keeping us in christianity is this now the problem with that is those kids don't have any money and they don't give it if they do but <laughs> but still you know the, i see a future there i have no idea what you were trying to ask but that's how i responded to it Brian, I uh, I so admire. I mean, spending most of your adult life in one community, that rootedness, which is so kind of antithetical to our current culture, where people are bouncing around all over the place, um, and uh, and appreciate that commitment to the local church and to being rooted in it. Um, and I think one interesting part of your story is that you went through your deconstruction, reconstruction while staying in one community as the pastor of that community. I think it's a, a pretty rare experience. But so many, uh, and I think Nate and I have, have been in this boat, um, and a lot of the people listen to the to the show are in this boat, uh, they weren't the pastors. They felt like they basically have been betrayed by the church, hurt by the church. Uh, it no longer feels like home in local church anymore. And some have, have gone on to other churches. Some have felt like, it's just an option between, you know, one version of the same thing in different places. And so it seems like there's we're in the season of this growing kind of exodus of people who still want to follow Jesus, uh, still, you know, want a life of faith and spirituality. But the American local church no longer feels like a, a place where, <laughs> where it's safe to, to practice that. How would you pastor those people? What advice, what wisdom do you have for them? I would say that most people that are reacting like that almost exclusively come from some version of evangelical. It'll fit somewhere on the evangelical spectrum. And to which I would say, I understand that 
evangelicalism, especially as it finds itself entangled in the culture wars, can be exhausting. And so you're thinking Sunday morning you're looking for some peace. You're looking for something that will sustain you through the week. And what you go is you find something that is more anxiety-inducing. Uh, and just, just so demanding of so maybe your, just your time and emotional energy. And I can see a person saying, I'm done with that. But here's what I would encourage. I would say, you still need sacrament and corporate worship. So maybe go try to find a church that's less, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, less energetic, which is my way of saying less exhausting, and where they have sacrament and people are gathering together to worship Jesus and go with very little expectation. But just say, this is at le- I'm going to at least to this level stay connected. Okay, you don't you don't have to come and volunteer for 10 different positions. You don't have to, you know, find your way back into that experience that was so exhausting, but at least, but gather with those that confess Jesus and where the sacrament is offered because you're you're going to need that. And so maybe you need a quieter expression. Maybe you need a more tempered pace expression but don't abandon the church altogether because whereas yes i'm willing to accept someone says well i i want to follow jesus but i just i just can't do the church thing i say okay i I think maybe that's theoretically possible you can probably pull that off but you won't pass on the faith to your children or your grandchildren that way um so I, i don't want to speak i don't want to speak harsh i'm not trying to be condemning but i'm just trying to speak objectively and honestly that if you pull out of the church and sort of just hold some sort of, you know, affiliation, affection, some kind of uh, self-defined allegiance to Jesus as a solo artist on your own, uh, if you have children, probably what's going to happen is they're going to grow up and say, yeah, my parents, they, they were like, they were like kind of. They were. I don't know. They were interested in Jesus stuff. We didn't go to church or anything, and it's kind of going to. That's going to be the end of Christian faith in your in that family line. Or somebody else is going to have to have their own experience and start it all over again. If you're really interested in children and grandchildren, now I'm at 59. I have six, soon to be seven grandchildren, all seven and under. And one of my daily prayers is God help me to help make Christianity possible for my grandchildren and their generation. So a lot of the way I determine what I'm doing as a pastor today is how is this going to help Jude, Finn, Evie, Mercy, Hope, and Pax to follow Jesus when they're 20 years old and they're all right now seven and under. Uh, that as much as anything. But, but Perry and I have often said, um, if suddenly we were just uprooted and we were in some city without any particular, particular connection... Uh, we're, we're church people, we're incorrigible Christians, we're going to be in a church, but we, we probably wouldn't initially try to find some high energy. You know, we, we would, here's, here's what we would want. We would want a church that offers weekly communion to people as we are, if you, if you catch my drift there. So that's going to narrow things down pretty quick right there. Weekly communion, so there's enough sense of sacrament there. And they will honestly offer communion to people like us which are non-affiliated. That's where we would probably begin. So, I, so, so maybe somebody could hear me talking like that 
and maybe maybe that would give them just enough impetus to be, kind of maybe ease their way back into some form of church life in a simple just gathering around the sacrament to worship and then you can slip out the side door quietly but but don't but don't abandon it altogether because then I'm afraid then it's too easy for Jesus to be kind of one of your interests along with you know running and fly fishing and a little bit of Jesus on the side I I would hate for that to happen. I think that that idea, that language you used of making Christianity possible, is uh, it's a really beautiful thought, and I think it's it's probably a good ending note because um, I think that's that's why we wanted to have you on. Like that's that's why we've appreciated your work, and that's part of what we're trying to to do too. Thank you. Is to a generation that has felt like Christianity was no longer possible because of all that it's been tied up in, um, trying to show that Christianity is is as good and worthy and possible as ever is is what we're totally devoted to. So Amen. thanks for all your work. Well, no, thank you. And honestly, I, I wasn't just trying to suck up to you almost heretics. I was <laughs> being very sincere when I say it's it's younger people like you that have enough energy and interest in this. So let's do a podcast and talk about these things. I find that just terribly encouraging. So rock on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate you coming on. Well, that was fun. Yeah, that was a really good conversation. What was sort of your biggest takeaway? I mean, I think the end of the conversation, talking about staying in church, leaving church, um, that definitely strikes an emotional chord with me. And I was uh, almost a little surprised when he said that uh, he thought if you don't stay in a formal church community, that your your kids and grandkids won't be able to hold on to Christianity. Uh, But then it seemed like he clarified that a little bit. Yeah, I think he clarified it by saying, which I think is a lot of our experiences right now, when he talked about if him and his wife were kind of picked up and dropped down into a different city where they weren't the lead pastors or anything like that, what would they do? And basically define staying in church as remaining uh, remotely connected to some sort of historical church liturgies and the sacraments, um, but not necessarily to any formal church community, which was, I think, really encouraging for a lot of our listeners who that is their experience. That is what they're trying to do right now. And that is maybe all they're interested in. Yeah, totally. And so much there's this rhetoric from the churches that uh, we feel like we want to or need to leave that if you don't do church anymore, you're not a Christian or, you know, you can't have Jesus without the church kind of feeling. And it, it often feels a lot like, you know, saying to an abused wife, you just have to stay with your husband, like just stick it out, endure the the suffering. That's the faithful thing to do. Right. Uh, it feels like a really oppressive idea. And so I was surprised because I know how empathetic Brian is to all the hurt and all the, the ugliness of the church and how critical he is of that. And so yeah, it was helpful for him to clarify that actually what he's trying to do is make sure that Christianity is possible for his for his grandkids. Another thing to consider, I think, is is how unique Brian's story is, is that when he went through his disillusionment and deconstruction, he actually had enough power as the lead pastor of his church to change the church and make it, remake it into the kind of community he thought it needed to be. And most of us, when we go through our various forms of you know hurt or frustration or disillusionment, we don't have that kind of power. You know, I had a lot of friends uh, that spent six, seven years at my past church in San Francisco uh, really 
disappointed and frustrated with what the church was, uh, but wanted to faithfully, from within, change that church for the better. And when it's not changing and you don't have the power to do that, it really does come down to how long are you going to hold out and when is it time to move on to something else? So again, I just, I really liked his, his clarification there that this isn't another voice saying, you know, how dare you leave the church and attacking all those who, who need to get out basically. Uh, but instead for him, it was a matter of saying what, what he's trying to do is, is make Christianity something that's even possible for his ki- kids and grandkids. It reminds me a lot of the way Rachel talked about things last week when we interviewed Rachel Held Evans, and we talked about the fruit of our biblical interpretation is actually really important. And so that's what I that's what I kind of hear when I hear making Christianity possible for you know Camden and Lucy and the next generation and our grandkids even is thinking through how are the ways that we're interpreting the Bible, how is it making it more possible or less possible for them to actually remain Christian in the culture that they're in. Totally, yeah. There's the other piece, I, uh, I wish we had more time with Brian, but it uh, was from something I read in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And it, it also reminded me of our conversation with Rachel. He was talking about kind of the fire brimstone preaching that's the our Puritan heritage. It's something that you and I experienced a lot of in our early years of ministry. He called it evangelism by terrorism, where you basically scare people with the threat of hell and then try to offer them the, mm-hmm. the yep. salvation to it. But he, he had a couple lines where he, he talked about how traumatic that kind of uh, preaching is. And uh, he even referenced uh, Jonathan Edwards' church, which famously listened to the sermon sinners in the hands of an angry God was said to have been like rolling on the floor in terror. Um, and it, it just made me think of the way Rachel talked about disintegration and the fracturing and fragmentation that happens in evangelicalism when we're trying to convince ourselves to believe things <laughs> that we don't find uh, plausible. It, there seems to be a, a parallel there between um, convincing ourselves to believe things that we feel are atrocious or like morally, uh, morally horrific, like the idea that God wants to, to torture us. And so both of those have got me thinking, man, there's, uh, there's a lot of reflection and a lot of conversation to have around kind of the psychology of, uh, evangelical Christianity. Yep, totally. And that's what we're going to keep doing on the show. That's the conversations we're going to have. And we're super excited to do that alongside you. So if you have any questions or thoughts, you just feel free to email us contact at almostheretical.com. Love to read those on the show or just process them as we prepare for shows. All right, we'll see you next week. See ya.